This is America's day. This is democracy's day. A day of history and hope, of renewal and resolve. Through a crucible for the ages, America has been tested anew, and America has risen to the challenge. Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, the podcast that looks at America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. Today, we celebrate the triumph not of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. The people, the will of the people has been heard and the will of the people has been heeded. We've learned again that democracy is precious. Democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. So the U.S. has had its transfer of power, peaceful, sort of, but maybe only because Washington has been turned into an armed camp and with the outgoing leader behaving like a deposed despot. An inauguration matters. It's the highest right in America's civil religion with its prayers, invocations, hymns, and, of course, the sermon, in which the new head of state reminds the congregation of their faith, duty, and mission. As we look ahead... In our uniquely American way, restless, bold, optimistic, and set our sights on the nation we know we can be and we must be. Joe Biden's sermon was reassuringly normal. Bromide-filled, seeped in boundless confidence in the American project. It was a soulful, heartfelt speech, delivered in plain and direct, very Joe Bidenish language. Look. I understand that many of my fellow Americans view the future with fear and trepidation. I understand they worry about their jobs. I understand, like my dad, they lay staring at, the, at night, staring at the ceiling, wondering, can I keep my health care? Can I pay my mortgage? Thinking about their families, about what comes next. I promise you, I get it. But the answer is not to turn inward, to retreat into competing factions, distrusting those who don't look like look like you or worship the way you do or don't get their news from the same sources you do. We must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue. Rural versus urban or, or rural versus urban, conservative versus liberal. We can do this. If we open our souls instead of hardening our hearts, if we show a little tolerance and humility, and if we're willing to stand in the other person's shoes, as my mom would say, just for a moment, stand in their shoes. Because here's the thing about life. There's no accounting for what fate will deal you. Some days... When you need a hand, there are other days when we're called to lend a hand. That's how it has to be. That's what we do for one another. And if we are this way, our country will be stronger, more prosperous, more ready for the future. And we can still disagree. 
The speech was unavoidably framed by the attack on the capital two weeks before. Much of its impact as a piece of political theatre came from the assertion of normality in the face of abnormality. The familiar rituals were a re-consecration of that place from the vandals of January the 6th, and in a larger sense, from the last four years. It was also a quintessential piece of American rhetoric. It was about what America was and what it must become. We will rise to the occasion, is the question. Will we master this rare and difficult hour? Will we meet our obligations and pass along a new and better world to our children? I believe we must. I'm sure you do as well. I believe we will. And when we do, we'll write the next great chapter in the history of the United States of America, the American story, a story that might sound something like a song that means a lot to me. It's called American Anthem. There's one verse that stands out, at least for me, and it goes like this. The work and prayers of century have brought us to this day. What shall be our legacy? What will our children say? Let me know in my heart when my days are through. America, America, I gave my best to you. Let's add, let's us add our own work and prayers to the unfolding story of our great nation. If we do this, then when our days are through, our children and our children's children will say of us, they gave their best, they did their duty, they healed a broken land. This was also the theme of the 22-year-old Amanda Gorman, the National Youth Poet Laureate, who ascended to the inauguration pulpit after Biden and recited her poem, The Hill We Climb. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from my bronze-pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the West. We will rise from the wind-swept Northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked South. We will rebuild reconcile and recover in every known nook of our nation in every corner called our country our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful when day comes we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid the new dawn blooms as we free it for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it To talk about all this, I caught up with two of my Oxford colleagues, Kate Guy, a DPhil candidate, lecturer in international relations at Oxford and a senior fellow with the Center for Climate and Security in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kate. Hello. Good morning. And my colleague at the REI, uh, Dr. Mitch Robertson. Mitch is running our Future of American Politics series at the REI this term. Hi, Mitch. Hi, Adam. And good to be back with you both again. So let's begin by talking about this uh, inauguration. Kate, you're there in Washington, D.C. In some ways, this was a very familiar set of events. It followed the same kinds of 
rituals that we have seen in many, many inaugurations in the past. In other ways, of course, it was startlingly different. How did you experience the inauguration day? Sure. Yeah. Here here in uh, Washington, just a few blocks up from the White House, actually, off of uh, 16th Street. And it was an interesting um, and historic day for so many reasons. And I think that history really started actually a few weeks ago uh, when we here in D.C. sort of had to witness firsthand this attack on our Capitol building, our democracy, and uh, the, the just sort of awful sites that I know the whole world saw um, of, of an angry mob and uh, those who were not happy with the results of the election sort of bringing that to bear on our dear city. So that was, I suppose, uh, the backdrop for so many Americans um, and, and the recent sort of past in that building that Joe Biden, President Biden now was speaking in front of and was viscerally, I think, present with so many of the legislators that were there for the inauguration speech um, and, and just so many of us. So it was a bittersweet moment, I think, a moment so many of us. And, you know, I, I worked for a democratic politics. I'm certainly biased. Um, but to really feel the sun sort of come out over that building as we were all watching the inauguration, it did feel a bit like morning in America, uh, <laughs> at least for, for us, uh, and potentially the start of a new way forward and, and charting a new course after what was a quite brutal uh, few past days. Mitch, is it is it morning in America? <laughs> it's it's morning in Biden's America. I think. I think you said in the you said in the introduction how American it was. To me, it was so Joe Biden as well. Like from from the speech, from the uh, performance, performing acts, from the celebration afterwards, it was very much we are living in Biden's America now. And I think there was that that sense of optimism that has been that's been so lost. But also the thing that struck me, the sense of joy is back. In American politics, and obviously this perhaps more so on one side than the other, but just even though America's in the the grips of a a terrible health crisis, a terrible financial crisis, the the, the sun was shining and, and people were smiling again. And I think there's just been this absence of joy. I think we probably don't want to lament too much on Donald Trump, but he just seemed like a man who didn't enjoy anything. And just to see Joe Biden, like because of the security circumstances had to do so much of the inaugural parade in the car, but just when he was going out and fist bumping people and saying hi to the the mayor of Washington, D.C., it just, it was nice to see a, a president smile again. And there's a lot of hard work to do, which we'll, which we'll get to in, in the, in the back half of this podcast, I'm sure, but it was nice just to, just to have a happy, happy day for a change. But in a way, I, I actually did have the feeling, though, that because we weren't allowed to be there, because D.C. wasn't in the sort of fanfare of inaugural balls and, and celebrations in person that it normally was, um, it was potentially the most accessible inauguration we've ever had. Um, and I say that because it was all sort of scripted to include the American people, you know, that message of unity and the, the face and vision of America in a, in a really different way. It wasn't just just, um, you know, the, the beautiful sort of fancy um, regalia that you normally see. It was concerts and it was uh, scenes sort of brought in from the whole world. And Mitch spoke about the joy of that. I felt such joy at seeing the artistic face of America back at the center of our government again. Uh, if anyone watched the sort of poetry and dance and music and uh, the the sort of arrival of, of the 
the theatrical stage sort of back. It was something that you didn't realize how much we were missing, both because of coronavirus and because of these past four years when art was sort of the furthest thing that the Trump administration wanted to to spotlight. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So it became it was less a Washington occasion and it was focused on an audience at home. It felt like a more inclusive national event. I think that's very true. I mean, let's talk about the the speech, the inaugural address itself. And and it was, as I think, I mean, Mitch has already kind of alluded to this. It was a very Biden-esque speech in many ways. But it also it struck me that this was a, a kind of classic of the genre in that what it did first and foremost, as almost every inaugural address has done, apart from the one that we had four years ago, was to set this occasion in the American tradition with a capital A and a capital T. What are your comments? What are your thoughts about the Kate, about the inaugural address? I actually, so I, I, I think you're right, and I'm sure Mitch will jump in and say sort of how this really speaks to the canon of, of Joe Biden's speeches. Um, but it was quite different. You know, I heard a take from um, uh, John Favreau, who's speechwriter for Obama, who said what this wasn't, which is what many inaugural addresses are trying to be, was an echo of John F. Kennedy's uh, inaugural address. Um, you know, it wasn't trying to to be that moment of, of, of soaring rhetoric and, uh, you know, storming uh, people with inspiration. Instead, it was sort of that solemn, uh, simple remark on where we are and, and call for unity. What I was really sort of struck by the power of uh, in that moment was how much of what he was saying echoed what he said on the campaign, you know, restoring the soul of America, the fragility of democracy. Um, but I think those those words and that rhetoric took on a whole new meeting, um, seeing what we saw just two weeks before the inauguration. You know, I don't think any of us really truly believed how fragile our democracy was, as Joe Biden had been saying, until we were able to overcome that. But Adam, as you said, that uh, it harkens back actually to a tradition of presidents speaking of that fragility of, of democracy in their inaugurals. I looked back at George Washington's and he, he speaks of the experiment in trusted in the hands of the American people uh, and how important it is to to constantly fight for and renew that democratic tradition. And that never was more viscerally real, I think, than, than with Joe Biden sort of having to potentially pull democracy back from the brink. And I know he really felt that and, and wanted to express that. This is Democracy's Day was his kind of key starting line. Mitch, what were the themes that struck you in this speech? I think the thing that struck me most was this was laying out, as you said, Joe Biden's vision of America, but it was also Joe Biden's vision of unity. And I think some people have been quite quick to sort of say that Joe Biden is naive in, in thinking that you can you can work with Republicans. And I think this was the speech where I've heard him speak for his longest about how he how he sees unity. And it's not it's not naive. Like I was looking back over this this great line where he says politics need not be a raging fire destroying everything in its path. Every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war. Now he's not saying that everyone says this is everyone is going to believe the same thing. He's not saying he's going to get a hundred votes for Medicare for all. It's about saying that Americans can work together. Um, we this famous line that he said we must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue rural versus urban, conservative versus liberal. And that struck me thinking back to Obama's 2004 DNC speech in which he said, 
there is not a liberal America, there is not a conservative America, there is the United States of America. Actually, Biden's take on it is not denying those categories. He's saying that there are liberals and there are conservatives, there are blue interests and red interests, rural interests and urban interests, but that, that they can work together. And he is not is not saying, as I said, that 100% of America can get together. When he laid out those crises, he was very careful to say that they were overcome by enough of us came together to carry all of us forward. Like he was not saying that there was total unanimity. And I think that was the thing that I really took from this speech was this is his vision of what unity looks like in Washington. And I think people who said that he was naive like they are a bit naive themselves i mean joe biden is a man of washington like he he knows how the system works who was who was the speech aimed at mitch i think the speech was aimed at some of the people behind him i think depending on which which cut of it you had uh, you know and he said we can work together they would uh, cut to visions of ted cruz and say i think part of it was aimed at aimed at people like him but it was also aimed aimed at the independence i think that's that's who it is, and we'll get back get later in to talk about who approved of the speech. But I think it was really targeted at the independent, saying, give me a chance. Um, when he said a line, three, three little words I thought were just absolutely beautiful. He said, I get it. And I think mm-hmm. so many Americans have been longing to hear those words that have seen Trump, you know, obfuscate, have seen him sort of deny the pandemic, just to hear a president say, I get it. And I think that was really where he was trying to speak to America. And I think that's always been Joe Biden's great skill. I think in the uh, debates with with Trump, that Trump would always look at Biden and sort of try and and sort of go straight for Biden. Biden would always look straight down the barrel of the camera and and sort of um, pass through that and say, I'm going to speak to the American people at the end. I think that's probably who the inauguration address was uh, was targeted and was received by. I mean, it was the most watched inauguration, I believe, uh, of the recent era. <laughs> Don't tell the former president that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Kate. I mean, what did the? It seemed to me that even by the standards of inaugural addresses, which I, of course, are not like a State of the Union speech, and they're certainly not intended to be policy documents, and they're not even kind of campaign speeches. But even by the standards of inaugural addresses, it seemed to me that it was strikingly lacking in any specifics there was an allusion to the importance of climate change there was no mention specifically of the vaccine it was pitched at a very abstract level wasn't it it was but i as a policy wonk really welcomed that i think it was not a moment biden has put out hundreds of pages of policy plans um he spent the afternoon after being sworn in signing a a huge stack of executive orders and documents the policy is there the policy was ready Americans needed a moment of, of release from those uh, policy fights and a moment of unity. And, and speaking to your question of audience, I think there was actually a, a very important second audience in Joe Biden's mind with this address, and that is the world. You know, he actually calls it out in the speech and said, you know, to the world who I know is watching, America has been tested and America has prevailed. And Joe Biden is somebody, to speak of, of policy, who foreign policy is really his thing and has been his thing for decades on the Senate and then as vice president. I think so deep in his mind uh, throughout his run and, and in this moment was what the American 
experience means for the rest of the world, for struggling democracies around the world, for activists around the world, for people trying to uh, build up their own societies in, in a similar sort of partnership. Um, so he speaks to rebuilding our alliances. He speaks to uh, supporting our, our democratic values around the world. And I think that was actually an incredibly important pillar of the speech that's often left out. You know, if you're speaking to the American people, they might not want to hear about the rest of the world. But uh, President Biden cares so much about the image we project beyond our borders. This speech seemed to me to be written very much, very much in the shadow of what happened two and a half weeks ago at the Capitol. I wonder whether with a little bit of distance, that will seem like an overreaction. One argument about what happened two and a half weeks ago was that it was a it was a security mess. There was a predictable bunch of Trumpies who behave like that when they're in some at a rally in a suburban shopping mall or in some airport. The difference here obviously was that it was in the heart of Washington, D.C., and they should never have been allowed to get into the Capitol. And if they hadn't, we might not really be thinking about it very much. Trump didn't do anything particularly different on that day than he'd done at any point in the whole of his relatively short political career. Maybe, in a way, Biden has given this these nasty events more importance than they really deserve. What would be your reaction to that idea? Gosh, yeah, yeah, that's a... I, I, I can see the thought behind that. I, I just must say, I think that's certainly not how things feel here on the ground. Um, and that's because it was this sort of awful moment that that I know a lot of my family and, and friends hearken back to what things felt like on, on 9-11, where in the days afterwards, you know, I think we all woke up with that, that feeling here in DC, like, oh, these annoying, uh, uh, mob there, they're going to be, uh, silly and, and stupid and, and rough each other up. Um, but in the days sort of after that attack, more and more has come out that showed the true gravity of, of what happened there. Um, and, and how close we were to just horrible, even more horrible and even more tragic things happening. And it was really just by, by the grace of a few individuals and by luck that they, they didn't go that far. And so I, I think that it is a moment that must be addressed as well, because it was a culmination of so much of what we saw. Very much like to echo what Kate said, but I think Trump is actually going to be in more trouble as the, as the days come on, I think, because I think there are really two tracks to what happened on the 6th of January, the two groups of people. There were the sort of the yahoos that were there. So as we saw, the person who was in the speaker's podium, the person who stole the speaker, sorry, the person who stole the speaker's podium and the person who stood in the in the well of the Senate. But the more um, um, uh, investigating that's been done by the FBI you see that there is this really sinister element to it. And these are the people that had the, had the cable ties and the handcuffs and they had military planning and the sense that this could have been a lot worse. I, I think this wasn't just a bunch of yahoos, you know, just out for their jollies. I think there is an, an element to it which is undercovering more and more of the point. And this was a really dangerous planned attack and there were weapons and there were, there were plans. And I think it, it will only look worse in, in hindsight. So, Mitch, how bigger crisis do you think the United States is facing then in historical terms? Because to read this speech, you'd think this is up there with, you know, what, what FDR was facing in 1933, what Lincoln was facing in 1861. Is it really in that league? I think it is. I think if you look at these four, the four crises that Biden, that Biden has talked about, 
the let me them the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, this is this is unparalleled. I think that's a that's a tick for being unparalleled. The climate we, we haven't talked much about that for four years because of the Trump presidency. But the the, you know, the climate was in a very bad way in two thousand eight when Obama won, and not a lot has really been concretely achieved. And we've seen steps with the, with the Paris Climate Accord, but there needs to be serious action on that front. The economy is in a very bad way, and what, what he termed equity, and we can talk about that in, in racial inequity, economic inequity, gender inequity. There are these big crises. But the bigger problem is that we saw on the 6th of January is this crisis of democracy. And if there isn't a legitimacy to the government, there isn't a legitimacy to government action, if there isn't a belief that politics works, none of these crises will, will be addressed and they're only going to get worse. And I think that, that is the bigger meta problem that, was, that Biden began the speech with. I'm slightly I'm obviously slightly playing devil's advocate here, but, you know, rereading the speech uh, just before our conversation, you know, I was looking for ways in which what 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 is it about America that Joe Biden is going to use to tackle these massive problems that you've just listed there? And I'm really struggling in the speech to see it. I mean, America is so much better than this, he says, you know, here we stand in the shadow of the Capitol Dome and. We went through the Civil War and yet we endured. We prevailed. And he refers to Dr. King and we prevailed there. But why did we prevail? It's really not clear. You know, don't tell me things can't change because Vice President Kamala Harris, first uh, woman to be sworn into that uh, office, first person of color. Um, but why have things changed? It's, it's all very unclear. It's about a question of faith that we're better than this. I will speak from a, a very American perspective because I think there were, of course, were where it was a subtext to all of the the remarks that were better than this, and that subtext is that America has not always been better than this, right? We have deep, deep divisions, inequities, um, horrible histories of of uh, slavery and colonialism and and all the rest. And I think when you hear that shining, at least for Democrats, when they speak that of that shining rhetoric of being better and, and progress and improving, it is because they can also hold in their heads at the same time this image of America has not always been great to so many people. Um, and so speaking with that kind of idea of, of you know, look at that Vice President Harris here, who overcome so many of the darkest impulses of this country to lead it, what that image is showing is that we cannot let up, we must have the resolve to to continue to progress, that these awful, awful uh, visions that we saw on the 6th and saw for the past four years, um, and beyond that, you know, before that, are such a deep strain of American history, that without sort of continuing to, to work beyond that, uh, America will not improve. But we have improved, and that that coming back from the brink of the Civil War, um, even you know, Washington speaks of this as well, and the fragility that he speaks of in the country is always there and always present. And so it's just it's it's my felt that that was a quite hopeful place to take this is that we can do better because we as America have constantly pushed ourselves to the brink of division and and hate and misinformation and all the rest, and yet we've risen above it. And so this time might not be unique because we've been there before, um, but at least we have examples to sort of pull from to to progress. There are, Mitch, there are many, we, we use this phrase, uh, American exceptionalism, because it is so embedded in the way in which Americans think about themselves. We talked about this, I think, the three of us when we, when we were last 
uh, on this podcast together. But of course, there are many different kinds of American exceptionalism, aren't there? And and what Kate has outlined there is a confidence in the special capacity of the United States, which nevertheless recognizes potentially its huge sins and problems. So it's not it's not inherently a triumphalist exceptionalism. It's just an extra what you know we might think looking in from outside is just an extraordinary capacity for faith in renewal. Mm-hmm. And that does feel like a very Joe Biden kind of exceptionalism, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, so I was I was just about to, to to provide that answer. I think that it feels natural. I mean it, it obviously is something I think American exceptionalism is the the two of us on this discussion are, are not American, but have chosen to sort of pursue a study of America as their as their career. And I think probably scratching that somewhere there is American exceptionalism. This idea that America is somewhere different, and it it kind of confounds people who are not American, and maybe confounds some Americans as well. But it is something that makes the study of America so interesting and and asks so many questions. But I think it, it rings true with Biden. I think he he genuinely believes it. I think a lot of people, a lot of presidents, you kind of have to be. I mean, we can talk about whether this is true or not, but it almost feels like you have to believe in American exceptionalism to be president of America. But Joe Biden actually believes it. Joe Biden believed in it when he was in the Senate. He believed in it when he was vice president. He believed in it for the past four years as a, as a private citizen. Like His predecessor really didn't believe in American exceptionalism in that way. He wanted to make America great, and that was the language he kept on using. But, I mean, he, he went around, he spent the, the last four years going around talking, leveling, putting America on the same level as... Russia and Turkey and China and pulling back in every way rhetorically and in policy terms from the sense of American global mission. But it's a it's a gut like American exceptionalism is a gut feeling, right? This is not an intellectual thing. This is a gut feeling. When he you know when he when Trump said, you know, one of probably one of the most revealing things he said as president when he said, you know, I think it was Fox News interviewing him and he said about Putin being a bad guy and he says there are a lot of bad guys out there. And it's like that's that is what I teach in US foreign policy, but US presidents don't say that. And you know, you can have an intellectual argument about where is the the place with most uh, social growth, and we can measure that with metrics and and indices and whatever. But it, it's a gut feeling. American exceptionalism is a gut feeling. I don't think if you're going to ask Joe Biden to sort of provide numbers for this, it's just a it's just a instinctual feeling. And he's an instinctual politician, and I think will be an instinctual president. Yeah, he speaks so often, and and sorry, he he always returns to this sort of sentence in his stump speeches and whatever, as there's never been anything America can't do when we pull together and confront it. And I think that is what he believes in his gut from, from you know, the, the early sort of days of World War II to the Cold War, which defines so much of his career. Like, he, he sees the history of America in these moments of overcoming horrible crises. And to, to have him at the helm of one of those moments, I think, is is an interesting poetic echo. I mean, and also, just if I can jump in there with the Kamala Harris line at the celebration, I think afterwards, when she said, America shoots for the moon, and then we put our flag on it. Like, that's a that's a good line. Like, that is like, that, you know, rah, rah, if we're in the middle of a depression, middle of a pandemic, like that is, that will get Americans feeling good again. What were the lines in the speech that you think will have gone over best? Kate? Yeah, the one that sticks in my mind, sorry, I'm just trying to find it, was um, actually one that, that probably won't get a lot of attention, but it struck me because I I work uh, on the issue of climate change and I'm always sort of uh, trying to track how, how it 
comes, he says, we have a, a planet that's crying out to us. And that, that struck me in, in part because of climate, in part because of, you know, that's what my work uh, shows me too. But I think it also speaks to um, hearing that cry, uh, which, which our former president uh, really didn't care to, both in terms of the cries of other populations, the cries of our own populations, um, and, and putting it in those deeply sort of emotional terms that, that with, uh, if you're somebody with empathy, if you're a country with empathy, you must respond to that and you must fix that. And then it, it, spoke to, I think, a lot of uh, the cries that all of us had uh, in the U.S. for for many different reasons for the past four years, and, and that he was here to respond. So I like that line. I think there are, there are two that really, really struck out with me. One was just, there's just 10 words that he said, there is no accounting for what fate will deal you. And I think that is the whole biography of Joe Biden in just in just 10 little words, that you, you hear that and you know you know what that means, you know what he's overcome to become president. I think that resonates with a lot of people in even ordinary circumstances that have had bad luck fall their way, obviously in the middle of a pandemic that has killed over 400,000 Americans and, and, and just ripped through the economy, ripped through lives. I think that was just a way of, of this to sort of Biden as this empathetic president, the president as the healer in chief. He doesn't need to doesn't need to talk about the car crash again. He doesn't need to talk about Bo again. Another one that I really loved, and I'm sure you did too, Adam, paraphrasing Lincoln when he said, my whole soul is in bringing together and uniting the nation. Uh, I, I was just going to say it harkens to something we spoke about on the on the last podcast, which is um, the soaring rhetoric of restoring the soul of the nation, right? And like, how do you think about the soul of this nation and, and, and restoring it? And it brings it to the most simple, genuine statement, which is Biden's whole soul is in that. And the soul is something he cares about so much as a religious man, um, as somebody who has experienced a lot of loss of a lot of souls around him. And just to like simply pledge his soul to this task is something that I think everybody, you know, feels as, as incredibly genuine and moving. In another January, on New Year's Day in 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. When he put pen to paper, the president said, and I quote, if my name ever goes down into history, it'll be for this act, and my whole soul is in it. My whole soul is in it. Today, on this January day, my whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. And I ask every American to join me in this cause. There's a brilliant line in a in a fantastic essay by Fintan O'Toole. I don't know whether either of you have read that essay by Fintan O'Toole in The Guardian a week or two ago, but he has a fantastic line about Joe Biden. He says, and this is in, this is in relation to the issue I want to turn to, which is what's going to happen in Congress and how can the administration advance its agenda. Fintan O'Toole writes of Biden, he is a horse whisperer who has to deal with mad dogs. And, and, and he's obviously alluding there to Biden's years and years in the Senate and understanding Washington polls and understanding that you got to as he as he said in the inaugural address, quoting his mother, you got to stand in the other person's shoes. And I guess that, you know, specifically in politics terms, in political terms, that means understanding what the other person needs, what they want, what you need to get, give them in order to get what you want. And Fintan O'Toole's point is, well, you know, that worked very well back in the 70s and 80s and 90s. 
But how do you how what is the relevance of those kinds of skills when you're dealing, you know, in the Senate with Senator Josh Hawley? Mitch, can you think of any specific policy questions on which there is a prospect of genuine common ground with Republicans? That's a big question. That's a, that's a very big question. But I, I mean, maybe I'm naive and optimistic. I mean, I don't think that Republicans think that America is in a great way now. Like, I don't think that the Mitch McConnell's does not believe that like every social problem in America has been fixed now. There's obviously some disagreement over which way to do it. But I think staring down the barrel of a, of a crisis, something needs to be done. And there does seem to be Republican votes in initial response to the coronavirus. I mean, it, it, you can't just have abstention in the face of this. Um, I mean, that is very, that's a very difficult question. I think uh, I'd like to be able to just reel off five and say, okay, there's five, five quick wins for Joe Biden. Um, I don't think I can wheel off five, but I could, I, I mean, I, I could reel off some issues where at least in theory, you'd think that there would be plenty of common ground. But the question is, so infrastructure, for example, potentially even um, immigration mm-hmm. reform, potentially regulation of of big tech i mean as well as the the crucial question of the virus these are all issues on which i imagine if you could sit down with a reasonably sensible republican and a reasonably sensible democrat and you could and somehow suck out the politics of it you could probably hammer out an agreement the question is whether the political incentives are there but kate sorry you want yeah i was actually going to say infrastructure as well if if anybody watched pete Buttigieg's uh hearing yesterday confirmation hearing on the hill you'll see i've seen many a chummy republican wanting to give him platitudes and and give him um uh, well wishes because they want it in their state don't they it's it's, it's old-fashioned pork barrel right which which is joe biden's stick right he he loves that sort of relational uh uh negotiation and so I and especially if so much of what he wants to do from from sort of building uh, back America better is going to be in terms of stimulus and uh, transport and infrastructure and all the rest, it it actually makes it a much easier ground for him to to sort of emerge on. And I think you will also see his team focusing on those issues first. Uh, it's it, it's sort of been distracted, I think, by all the crisis language of his four crises. Um, but in focusing on those things, in focusing on things that I also think that they, he thinks there's common ground on, you know, at least in the American public, climate and racial justice and uh, the economy and virus are things that that the polls say the country is actually quite united on. Um, so focusing on those things keeps you sort of away from bigger sticking points like the overall healthcare system, right? The overall immigration system. Um, and it, it's been an interesting sort of uh, dance to watch them do. Like we're focusing on these crises now. We'll get to the the more difficult sticking uh, positions later. And so that it's an, an important sort of thing to draw out. The other thing that Republicans and Democrats, at least uh, on the Hill, are quite united on, actually, um, is not doing away with filibuster power, right? I think both uh, the senators, at least who are in charge, and the Republicans, uh, of course, in the Senate, do not want that important sort of guardrail as they see it done away with. 
Uh, so what that means is that the Democrats, as they have been doing through through now Majority Leader Schumer and others, can ratchet up that threat <laughs> uh, and and act like they are willing to sort of uh, pull that that uh, fire scrape tool and, and get rid of the filibuster in order to force Republicans to come to the table um, because it's something that I think actually both sides really don't want to do, but one side will use as that that sort of credible threat uh, in negotiations quite forcefully. It's a real challenge to prioritize all this, given the number of challenges facing the new administration, Mitch. And on top of all of that, he's got the problem, potentially the problem of a Senate impeachment yes. trial. Uh, how do you see that playing out? And how distracting is that going to be? I think that's a, a big problem. I think in some ways, if the word Trump was never mentioned again, the Biden administration would actually be very happy. I mean, there's, there's two ways they could take this. I mean, he is an object to beat up on. That, that that would be one way to play this, but it's been quite clear from the first few days that they just kind of want to leave that in the past. They don't want to relitigate these issues of the last four years. They want to get on with a positive Biden agenda. Um, in terms of how you prioritize and balance uh, the, the Trump years and justice for the Trump years, I actually think the Biden administration would be smart to use Trump as an important foil for them as they move forward. You know, not put all of the um, the attention on him. We've had enough of that for the past four years. But you saw this a little bit with, with Dr. Fauci's sort of triumphant return to the briefing room last night, uh, all smiles and, and speaking of being liberated. You know, there is there's certainly a feeling in in the Biden world that we want that foil. You know, we want that that uh, person who showed us how bad things can be to give us um, impetus and, and perhaps even joy for what we want to do. Um, Trump was also an incredibly uniting figure uh, for the left um, that we will start to see the absence of um, as the left uh, potentially returns to infighting among itself. So if you can wield that that power of of Trump or potentially the Trumpian base skillfully, I think it would be it would be good for for the Biden team to think about that. I just want to ask you both about Kamala Harris. And I mean, we need to, you know, we haven't really spoken very much of her in this conversation, but we obviously need to underline the fact that her uh, swearing in was itself an extraordinary moment, a historic moment in American history. But I really want to ask you both what kind of vice president you think she's going to be. I mean, we know that vice presidents have played very different roles across different administrations. Uh, she's in a particularly, there's going to be a particular amount of attention on her, not just because she's a woman, but because the person who's the president is 78 years old. What do you expect from her? What do you think we'll see from her and what will be the nature of her influence? Well, I think um, particularly uh, after the events of, of Georgia with the, the Democrats retaking 50 seats and then with the uh, vice president's chair, 51 seats, I think we'll see her. She was sitting in that uh, Senate Senate speaker's chair on election day. I think we'll see her there uh, See her there a lot. Oh. I mean, she'll be used as this 101st, 101st senator, I guess 51st Democratic senator. I think that will be a key part of her role. But I also think that in some ways the Biden-Obama relationship changed changed how we think of presidents and vice presidents. I mean, they are often not a team. They're a team for the election, but they're not a team governing. I mean, George H.W. Bush used to say that his job as vice president was wake up, have someone tell him if Reagan was still alive, and then roll over and go back to sleep because that was, that was his whole job doing that. But whereas Biden, you know, he asked as part of the deal becoming 
president was that he would get a meeting with a, a lunch with President Obama every week, and I believe he's continuing that tradition with with Kamala Harris. So I think you will actually see them even in the branding. I think we saw a lot of uh, talk of the the Biden Harris transition, the Biden Harris inauguration, the Biden Harris uh, administration. So I think that that language will be used. I mean, she they're they're a great team. They are they are they are different. And they appeal to different different parts of the different parts of the public, and they have different strengths and different weaknesses. But I think they they work well together. They are a good team, and we'll see them actually operate as a team. Do you share that optimistic view, Kate? I I do in part because of how good a politician uh, Vice President Harris is, and it of course like it cannot be underscored how deeply moving and symbolic uh, for me as a young woman, her, her swearing in was in part because, you know, the first woman to take office is also a woman of color. It's also a woman um, who is the daughter of immigrant parents. All of this speaks to, you know, so much of, of what we were speaking to earlier, but is just like just a remarkable testament for her that she was able to overcome the the sexism and, and awfulness um, of, of so much of the, the campaign and, and rise to this level and, and her grace and that was just something that men and women, I think, should should learn from. Um, but I, I don't want to sort of remove that from her as a person because she, as, as we saw sort of throughout the day uh, of the inauguration and the campaign, is an incredible speaker, an incredibly empathetic woman. Um, and and that comes through. And, and she's able to, I think, remake the image of women in politics through that. And the, the image of leaders in politics in general, that she's able to dance and be be joyful, but also be an incredibly skillful prosecutor, an incredibly um, uh, smart, whip-smart politician. Okay, in the in your opinion, you two, is there a plausible scenario whereby the Democrats do not lose seats in the midterm elections in 2022? Because we, you know, we know that historically there have been some occasional exceptions. 1934 was an exception when the Democrats uh, advanced after the uh, impressive first 100 days of FDR's administration. But generally speaking, the party in power loses ground in the midterm elections. And if they lost control of both houses of Congress, which is perfectly plausible in 2022, that would dramatically dramatically clip the wings of the Biden-Harris administration. is What is the scenario whereby that can be avoided? Mitch? I think the, the one thing that can be done, which we've seen some promising signs for the Democrats in, in the early days, is this emphasis on party building, as Kate alluded to in her, last, in her last answer. I think with the appointment of Jamie Harrison as the chair of the DNC with this 50-state 50, strategy saying they want to build the Democratic Party, not just in key swing states and not just in key states where the Democrats do well, but states where the Democrats don't do so well and building for the future. And I think we saw even with the, the huge success of the Obama administration, a, a sort of backsliding with how the Democratic Party performed across um, across governors, across um, state races. The What I think Joe Biden realises is that they need to perform well in 2022 to crush Trumpism. They've beaten Trumpism in 2020, and they've got to crush it. And that, I think, will be the uniting factor of the Democratic Party to push forward in the midterms, and then on to 2024. Kate? Yeah, I um, am slightly depressed by this, (laughs) because I feel like we just barely ended the 2020 (laughs) electoral season and are already on to the next campaign. Um, But I I think that the the feel here uh, among folks is the only way we 
potentially win in in what will, as you said, be an incredibly tough midterm season is if we produce real quick wins um, for for the Biden team and really deep uh, sort of uh, changes for the American people in the next year, right? Uh, in the next year and a half. And that is a very tough thing to do, especially when you have, as I said, so much to sort of like clean up and rebuild from the Trump years just in the workings of government itself. Those things that most people, uh, you know, maybe not the listeners of this podcast, but most normal people don't care much about uh, those institutional problems. Um, so I think you'll you'll see a, a very diligent and, and focused uh, strategy by the Biden administration to produce things that people feel that people know um, is, is there to help them. Just today, they're announcing uh, even more aid and and including food aid for people struggling in this in this um, economic crisis. And so, I think those sorts of things will be uh, for better or for worse. What, what define the legislative agenda? You know, what can we? Uh, in terms of transportation infrastructure, what can we build in places? How can we put people back to work? How can we sort of take credit for those things as well? Something the Obama administration was was uh, not as good at, at doing. Mitch, we've been living through a long political era from the late 1970s through up until some unspecified time in the 21st century uh, in which the role of government and especially the federal government was seen to be on the retreat. You know, the famous Reagan line from his first inaugural address, government is not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem, which was sort of echoed by Bill Clinton in 1993. And are we now, in the light of what Kate is just saying, are, is there now a possibility that we're into a new political order but the Biden-Harris administration has an opportunity now, if it can pull it off. And I don't know if it's possible, if it's humanly possible, because the structural obstacles are so severe, but not just to display competence, but through the display of competence to restore faith in the federal government's capacity to solve people's problems in the way that the federal government did in the 1930s and 40s. You are absolutely speaking my language right now, Adam. This is how, how long have we got? We've got another couple of hours that I can... Uh can riff on this about but I think no I think this you make an excellent excellent point there I think there is the chance and you you are correct to emphasize there's a chance to reassert the the good that government can do and I think we'll see that with the 100 days with with vaccinations it's about letting which you've seen the 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 sort of intellect of government intellect and capability of government smothered by the Trump administration deliberately I mean this is this is not something that's happened by accident Reagan said you know, government is bad, and then did things to make sure government was ineffective, so people would think it's bad. So this is this is a project that the Republican Party has been involved in for, for four decades, and I think Biden may well be the man to to lead it, and Biden Harris to, to be the team to say that government action does work. I mean, they're not. We saw in the uh, campaign that Trump tried to portray Joe Biden as a socialist. He's not a socialist, but he does believe that like government programs work. He believes that government can do good. He believes the government can can cure cancer. He believes the government can help alleviate hunger. And I think a, a believer in government and a, someone who's actually willing willing to say it, willing to say that they believe in government and that they believe that government can do good, which Democrats have have often retreated from, even if they've supported government programs, they've not they've tried to almost obfuscate that they are federal government programs. And I think Joe Biden ha, ha, does have a moment to to plant a flag here and say government can do good. Uh, the pandemic, one of the many reasons the pandemic went unchallenged 
in America for so long was the the weakness of, of public services, the weaknesses of of healthcare, how that it had been allowed to erode, the weaknesses of infrastructure, all these all these sort of things, and say that no government government is good, government can do good things. You know, government can be a place where people come together to do good things, and I think that is that is Biden's opportunity. If that's true, then there's it's a it's a fantastic bookend to the so-called neoconservative era to have elected a president who was first elected to public office in the kind of the era of the just in the after glow of Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society and who is so old, you know, that he imbibes those pre-1970s um, uh, values and attitudes to government. But one of the silver linings for me of of this moment and and this uh, sort of mm. crisis moment that we're in is not one of the past. It's actually one of the future of the progressive movement because I think the real people and energy behind a, a new deal are young people. Uh, the real energy really forcing and and potentially making it possible for Biden to do any of the things he wants in an FDR style are youth activists pushing for Green New Deal, pushing for. Uh, 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 overall healthcare uh, revitalization, pushing for big stimulus and, and big money. And that to me is, as I said, I think a silver lining of the Trump years, um, especially if we're thinking about revitalizing government, is that these poor young people who most of their political life has been, uh, you know, the Trump years or some of the rancor of, of the last uh, um, four years of the Obama administration, is that they are sort of newly interested and see themselves in politics and in government. And that is something that is an energy that that the the Biden team needs if it wants to do the big things that it wants to do, and the the Democratic Party needs if it wants to sort of remain uh, an important force beyond this moment. So, as the president said in his inaugural address, then in effect, you need to kind of see the dark side before experiencing the light and that kind of sense of relief that you know you're you're radiating now Kate I can see this from across the Atlantic I mean, you're, <laughs> you're radiating the sense of relief um Kate Guy and Mitch Robertson thank you both very much indeed thank you thank you very much I was talking there to Kate Guy and Mitch Robertson in his second inaugural address Lincoln said that four years earlier confederates would make war rather than let the nation survive in 2021, the young poet Amanda Gorman said, we've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it. So, is this a new page in America's story as Joe Biden would have it? Is this a time when the mystic chords of memory are again touched by the better angels of our nature? This podcast is called The Last Best Hope, with a purposeful question mark at the end. We don't swallow the American myth wholesale, but nor do we dismiss its power. On which note, because when else can I do this? Please welcome Lady Gaga. Let's end with Lady Gaga. Goodbye. <laughs>